St. Thomas was not only an academic theologian, he was also a friar preacher. But he did not only preach sermons in church. Often Dominicans of his time would preach in the open air, in market squares, as well as in churches. And they would offer preaching to give more general instruction in the Catholic faith, to move their hearers to repentance, so that their audience would go to confession, to have their sins forgiven, and dedicate themselves to living a more Christian life. This preaching might be nearer to what we would think of as catechetical instruction, or a series of talks that Dominicans might give. Towards the end of St. Thomas's life, not so long before he himself died and faced God's judgment, he gave catechesis to Italian audiences by explaining the Our Father, the Hail Mary, and the Apostles' Creed in their own language. His secretary, Reginald, preserved his talks for us in a Latin translation. St. Thomas thought that the Apostles' Creed contained the doctrine that every Christian really ought to know. So we can get a sense of what he thought Christians should know about the Last Judgment. He does this under the article of the Creed that Christ will come again from heaven to judge the living and the dead. He thinks his hearers need to know about three main things. The first being the basics concerning the form that that judgment would take. The second being reasons why one might fear this judgment. And finally, how they needed to prepare themselves for judgment. So starting off with the form of the judgment, St. Thomas again divides what his audience need to know into three. They should know who the judge is, who is going to get judged, and what they will be judged about. It's not difficult for St. Thomas to say who the judge is. He only needs to quote scripture, Acts chapter 10, verse 42, to show that God has appointed Christ to be the judge of the living and the dead. The living and the dead turn out to be the remainder of the human race apart from Christ. And St. Thomas follows two traditional interpretations of this phrase. Either the living are the righteous and the dead are sinners. I suppose those who are spiritually alive and those who are spiritually dead. Or the living are those who are physically alive at the end of time and the dead are those who had already died physical death. But in the end, one way or the other, it's everybody. St. Thomas can easily quote 2 Corinthians 5.10 to show that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for what he has done in the body, whether it be good or evil. As for the judge, St. Thomas is careful to say that Christ is their judge, not only insofar as he is God, but also insofar as he is human. 
he also gives reasons for why Christ's humanity is crucial to his judicial power. And one of them is this. St. Thomas says that if everyone at the last judgment were to see Christ in his divine nature, that would mean seeing God as he really is. The very knowledge that brings complete fulfillment and happiness to human beings. But if everyone at the judgment has the beatific vision, that would rather defeat the purpose of judgment, since everyone, including the wicked, would have received the reward of everlasting life. So St. Thomas lets people know that Christ as judge will be seen not in his divine nature, but only in his human nature. And it is in this way that everyone will be able to see their judge. Having given a bit more detail on the form the judgment will take, St. Thomas makes it clear that there is a true sense in which this judgment is worthy of being feared. One good reason for such fear is that our judge knows everything, including everything about each one of us. Then, as well as this wise knowledge, there is also his almighty power, his justice and ability to punish. St. Thomas, however, did not want to leave his audience in fear. Next, he says that there are four remedies for this fear, which are the practical solutions he proposes which will take this fear away. And this is how people can prepare for the judgment. The first remedy for fear of judgment is simply to act well in your life, to do good works now and in the future. The second is confession and repentance for the sins we have committed in the past. St. Thomas says that this includes sorrow when we think of them, shame for them when we confess them, and even a certain severity with ourselves when we do penance for them. With this remedy, any eternal punishment there might be for our sins will be taken away. Then St. Thomas adds a special mention of almsgiving, which he says makes all things clean. And finally, he ends with charity, loving God and our neighbor. And he quotes 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, to say that charity covers a multitude of sins. In all these things, culminating in love, St. Thomas says that we have a remedy for the fear that thought of judgment rightly stirs up in us. And this is more or less what St. Thomas thought everyone needed to know about Christ's return in judgment. What I want to explore this evening is the fact that St. Thomas thought that when Christ returns as judge, we will already have been judged by him invisibly at death. As well as the general judgment at the end of time, Catholics also believe that there will be a particular judgment for the soul of each one of us 
at death. As a Catholic, St. Thomas was just as much committed to this doctrine as any other Catholic. So he held that at death, the soul, now separated from the body, was able to be recompensed with either eternal punishment or eternal reward. You can easily see how what St. Thomas says about the fear of the judgment and the remedies for such fear can be applied to the particular judgment just as much as they apply to the last judgment. From our point of view, though, is the second of these judgments just a repeat of the first? Now, we might suppose that the first judgment was somehow lacking, somehow incomplete, and so was not really a proper judgment. After all, God's judgment is active all the time, and we can be judged provisionally in many ways, such as when we are judged forgiven through the sacrament of confession. Now, if the particular judgment were also provisional, that would give a reason why a second judgment, a complete and proper judgment on each individual would be required. St. Thomas was aware that it had been a common view in the past that no one was really admitted to the full reward of heaven, the beatific vision, until the resurrection of the body. So on that view, any recompense that follows death is not complete. For a perfect recompense, one would have to await the resurrection. And so the last judgment, which takes place at the resurrection, would provide a judgment that meant one could actually be admitted to the beatific vision. This view that the beatific vision was delayed until the resurrection had fallen out of favour, however, by St. Thomas's time. By St. Thomas's time, it was the consensus among theologians that souls separated from their bodies after death were admitted to the perfect happiness of the beatific vision, following whatever purification they might need in purgatory. St. Thomas thinks of how St. Paul spoke in 2 Corinthians 5.6 of departing from the body and being at home with the Lord. I think that St. Thomas understands this to mean that the blessed souls are united in heaven with Christ and so see the divine nature with him and share his blessedness. Paul certainly contrasts walking by faith, which pertains to this life, with walking by sight. St. Thomas concludes that Paul holds that in departing this life, he will no longer be walking by faith, but walking by sight. In other words, after death, the separated soul will be able to see God face to face, see God just as he really is, and know his very essence. Now, St. Thomas thinks that since the body and its senses are not a source of this intellectual vision of God, 
the body cannot be required for the soul to enjoy the beatific vision. The source of the saint's knowledge of God's essence is not any human ideas or concepts that have their root in the bodily senses. In fact, any human idea or concept of God will be finite and unable to grasp the infinite God. And so in the beatific vision, God makes himself the means of the saints' knowledge of him by giving himself to them and flooding their minds with his own divine light. The created intellect's heavenly knowledge of God is possible, St. Thomas realizes, without the presence of the body. And so this is how souls separated from their bodies can be admitted to their core reward after death and before the resurrection. The upshot is that the particular judgment at death is sufficient to admit the soul to its ultimate recompense, whether that be reward or punishment. So this means that the particular judgment of the soul is a proper definitive judgment and not one in which some core feature of definitive judgment is missing as though it required another judgment to come along and do a proper job on admitting the soul to its final recompense. In fact, the admission of souls to their final recompense after death became the teaching of the church in the century after St. Thomas himself died. In 1336, Pope Benedict XII settled the issue about whether the beatific vision could be received by souls before the resurrection and last judgment. And like St. Thomas, he said that this was indeed the case. Of course, St. Thomas did not know that the Pope would declare this to be the church's teaching, but in any case, he taught the same thing. So where this leaves St. Thomas and us, is with two proper definitive judgments, one at death and the other at the end of time. This raised a more complicated theological question for St. Thomas than his catechetical teaching covered. Why would God judge us twice? Of course, you may suppose that God can do what he likes. He is God after all, our creator and judge. And if he wants to judge us twice, then why not? Who would we be to tell him otherwise? Surely he can judge us as many times as he likes. St. Thomas, however, does not think of the all-wise God in this way. For him, it is much more of a puzzle why God in his wisdom would do exactly the same thing more than once. That wouldn't really seem like a fitting thing for an all-wise and all-powerful God to do. In fact, St. Thomas could quote the Bible against this very idea of God doing the same thing twice. The verse he quotes is from the Old Testament prophet Nahum, chapter 1, verse 9. 
the verse goes like this. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a full end. He will not take vengeance twice on his enemies. I suppose this means that God doesn't ever need to judge and punish his enemies all over again. He gets things right the first time. There are different versions of this verse in different versions of the Bible, as St. Thomas was fully aware. And more than once he mentions that there is this alternative version, which is based on the Greek Old Testament. God will not judge the same thing twice. St. Thomas takes this verse with absolute seriousness as God's word and takes it to mean that God will not judge the same thing twice from exactly the same point of view. I think that St. Thomas would have found it odd for the all-wise God to need to do such a thing. In his wisdom and power, he would get it right the first time and his judgment would be fully effective. So there would be no need for him to judge the same thing twice in exactly the same way. And that would certainly be unfitting. But what if the second judgment were made, admittedly on the same thing, but from a different point of view in a, a different kind of way? Now for St Thomas, that might be fitting. And he is prepared to explore the fittingness of why God might judge the same matter twice, but in each case from a different perspective, so to speak. If we want to look for St. Thomas's deeper theological thoughts on some question, we normally look to his generally most mature work, the Summa Theologiae. However, he never finished the Summa and didn't get as far as the last things, heaven, hell, death and judgment. He left off writing somewhere in his section on the sacraments. And he told Reginald, his secretary, that he could no longer write because everything he had written seemed to him like straw. However, we do know where his thoughts were headed because in his treatment of Jesus, after looking at his resurrection, ascension, and sitting at the Father's right hand, he asks about Jesus's power to judge. But if we want a fuller account of the last judgment itself, and indeed of the particular judgment, we have to turn back to other works, like the early commentary on the sentences, the Summa Contra Gentiles, and the Compendium Theologiae, which was a shorter summary of theology, which St. Thomas started at the request of Reginald. One point that is clear from all St. Thomas's treatments of judgment is that the last judgment had a kind of priority in his thinking. In his thought, the last judgment was the more significant of the two. We can see this from the fact that he habitually treats the last judgment first, even though it comes last in time, 
And then he treats the particular judgment second. We might be fooled, though, if we looked at the supplement which Reginald put together to complete the unfinished summer. Reginald drew for this on passages he took from the commentary on the sentences. In doing that, however, Reginald changed the order of some of the material. So we find the supplement treating the particular judgment first and then the last judgment, doing that second, which was not in fact the way St. Thomas did it himself. However, it remains true that chronologically, the particular judgment of the soul at death does come first for us. And that leaves us asking from this chronological point of view, what more the second judgment adds to the first one. We saw how in his catechetical lectures, St. Thomas distinguished between what gets judged and what the judgment is about. I'm going to begin here with what the judgment is about. Of course, the primary concern of this is human actions we have performed during our lifetimes. And judgment will show up whether these actions were good or evil. The particular judgment assesses each of our lives at the point of death, and so judges all the actions we performed during our lifetimes. It is not as though there are any further actions that we're going to perform that need to undergo judgment, because our lives are finished, over, strictly speaking. There is no more to judge in the individual's life. And this is why souls can already receive their final recompense. St. Thomas thinks that without their bodies, souls are not able to make the great turnings to and away from God that we can in this bodily life. Without the body, the soul is fixed either for God or against him. This means that death is not an arbitrary time God has just picked on for our particular judgment. Because the will is fixed at the separation of the soul from the body, it's a time that makes perfect sense for judgment. However, while St. Thomas recognizes that it is true that our lives in this world are over at death, he also sees a sort of way in which our lives in this world are not over. There is a sort of afterlife for each one of us in this world, not containing more actions of ours that need to be judged, but rather the way our lives somehow continue in their after effects. And he gives five examples of this. The first of these is the fact that the memory of the dead lives on among us here on earth. It's not that people are immediately forgotten here as soon as they die. Rather, we remember people, remember what they were like, 
and so their reputations carry on. Now we might wonder how this can be relevant to their judgment. Well, St. Thomas thinks that it is of significance that these memories of people are not always correct. There can be misinformation and fake news about the dead. Someone who was in fact wicked can be reputed to have been good, and good people can suffer from a bad reputation, which was in fact incorrect. Here is an example of a kind of afterlife we can have in this world, a kind of after effect of our lives that is wrong and somehow needs putting right. And that is where divine judgment comes in. Of course, the soul has been rightly judged by God at death and recompensed accordingly, rightly. There is no error in God's particular judgment on our actions that needs putting right. However, there is something else in the world that needs putting right. And here we can see how at the last judgment, God can judge the same things, our lives, from a different perspective, a broader perspective that includes the after effects of our lives. There is unfinished business from our lives that needs to be put into the right perspective so that everyone can know the truth about it. St. Thomas has other examples of such after effects. The second is how something of us carries on in our children. We of course know that 50% of someone's DNA is passed on to their child. St. Thomas knows nothing about DNA, but of course realizes that we pass something of ourselves onto our children. He illustrates this with a quotation from scripture about how when a father dies, in a way he might well not be dead because he leaves likenesses of himself behind, meaning children. Again, St. Thomas sees possible unfinished business here because good people can have wicked children and evil parents can have good children. Although God will have rightly judged the souls of the parents at death, there are after effects of their lives in their children that constitute unfinished business to be cleared up for the parents at the last judgment. Another example of how our actions can have effects that continue even after we have died is this. The example that springs to mind now is heretics, especially those who have led others into heresy. Now, heretics may, of course, be repentant for their sins, and St. Thomas is in no doubt that God has judged the soul of each one justly at the particular judgment. But the effects of their sins are not limited to their lifetimes, and St. Thomas fully expects the results of their infidelity to continue right down until the end of the world. And likewise, he thinks of the good effects of what people have done continuing on. And he gives as an example, the preaching of the apostles, 
whose effects will continue to the end of time. Again, there is unfinished business in each of these that can be cleared up and seen from a global perspective in the last judgment. A fourth example relates to the bodily remains of the dead. St. Thomas notes that different things can happen in different cases. Someone might be given an honorable tomb, or they might be left unburied, or whatever it might be. Although this doesn't affect the eternal recompense given the soul at death, I suppose that St. Thomas thinks that things can go wrong with the treatment of our bodily remains, and that this unfinished business again can be put into a proper perspective at the resurrection. And finally, St. Thomas also thinks in the same way of the earthly business we leave behind, our earthly possessions and so on. All the projects we put effort into in this life are all subject to subsequent change. And things that we've put a lot of effort into during our lives might quickly fail afterwards, for example. So long as all this unfinished business remains, St. Thomas concludes that no absolutely perfect and clear judgment of all things can be made. In each of these cases, there is something for the last judgment to take under consideration, which was not put right at the particular judgment. And this is a situation that can last as long as the time of this world lasts a situation without total clarity. St. Thomas then has a reason for a last or final judgment at the end of earthly time, which can give a clear and perfect judgment on everything and which will count for everyone who has ever lived. So God will only judge each thing twice insofar as he judges it the second time in this different, wider, fuller perspective. Now, in considering what gets judged, we have moved closer to a fuller grasp of what an act of judgment entails for St. Thomas. Judgment does not only include weighing up evidence and reaching a decision on the guilt or innocence of someone and what recompense they deserve for what they have done. It can also include making the verdict known, the public announcement, so to speak, of the verdict. There is something about the announcement of the verdict at the last judgment that is more extensive than the announcement made to the individual soul at the particular judgment. At the particular judgment, the soul learns where it stands with God, as far as its individual earthly life was concerned. But at the last judgment, what is made clear and learnt by all is far more extensive. 
whereas the particular judgment gives each soul certainty regarding personal reward or punishment. The general judgment will make known to each in a more public way the recompense due to all. We can see here a perspective in St. Thomas that is not individualistic, but one that is appreciative of the social and interdependent character of our humanity. We see this both in the after effects of our individual lives that he wants to take into account, where our lives are so bound up with each other, and in the way the last judgment is made totally and publicly clear to all. In the commentary on the sentences, St. Thomas emphasizes this collective nature of the last judgment, in contrast to the individual character of the particular judgment. At the last judgment, everyone receives judgment, not simply as it applies to them, but in the context of God's governing of the whole universe. I want now to move on from what the two judgments are about to what exactly gets judged in each judgment. In the first judgment, it is, of course, the soul that is judged, then separated from its body by death. And we might suppose that God could achieve his second, more collective judgment simply by judging all separated souls together in view, of course, of his wider perspective on the after effects of their bodily life on earth. The last judgment could then be a general judgment of souls, where the souls of all are now informed about the judgment made on all. But of course, this is not what we find in scripture, where the last judgment takes place at the general resurrection of the body, when the body is sort of fixed, just as the soul's will was fixed at the particular judgment. So the last judgment is not a judgment merely on souls, but a judgment that involves bodies too. This means that St. Thomas needs to take account also of the fact that what is judged at the last judgment are bodies as well as souls. And here we have something further that is added at the last judgment, not merely what the judgment is about, but what precisely is judged. St. Thomas states in the Compendium of Theology that the ultimate recompense of any human being has to require recompense in both body and soul. This applies both to recompense by way of a heavenly reward and to recompense by punishment in hell. The reason for this is that they are being recompensed for what they have done in this life. Following St. Paul, St. Thomas sees them as rewarded or punished for what they have done in the body. Those who act well in this life and those who act wrongly are composed of body as well as soul. 
And this is why they should be recompensed in body as well as in soul. Although good and evil works are based ultimately in our human will, the will is a power of the soul, the body is of course involved in such works. So in the resurrection to heaven, the light of the beatific vision will have an impact on the body, a kind of glorious overflow from glorified soul to glorified body. And so the body will share somehow in the soul's reward. Likewise, a mind darkened by rejection of God will have a comparable impact on the body. Now, since according to St. Thomas, any true recompense presupposes judgment, St. Thomas thinks that judgment must extend to the body as well as to the soul. In other words, for someone to be recompensed in the body, they have to be judged in the body. So here we see how the last judgment adds something to the particular judgment. While only the soul was judged through the particular judgment, judgment is then extended at the general judgment to the body also. In making his argument, St. Thomas was applying his conviction that a human being is a composite of soul and body, a unity of body and soul, rather than the body and soul being two complete substances loosely tied together. He thinks of the soul as the body's form, and he thinks of the separated soul as naturally wanting its body back. So he does not treat the body as something external to a human being, like a mere tool or instrument. Rather, the body is really part of a complete human being. Likewise, the soul is not a complete substance in its own right, but part of one. And the soul is not identical to a complete human being. As St. Thomas says, my soul is not me and my body is not me either. St. Thomas thinks that even though our properly human acts in this life are rooted in the soul, it is really the complete human being who acts by means of the soul. The body is involved in these acts, not as a mere instrument or tool used by the soul, but as a true component of a complete human being. The upshot is that if only the soul were judged and recompensed, then a complete human being, body and soul, would be neither recompensed nor judged for its actions. Hence, if a perfect judgment of human beings on the last day is to be truly complete, a bodily resurrection is required. Here we see how, in terms of what is judged, the last judgment adds to the particular judgment, not simply that a body is now judged as well as the soul, but that a complete human being is now judged rather than just its soul.
So the last judgment adds not just more things to be judged in terms of the afterlife of human beings in this world, what the judgment's about, but also adds to what is judged. Complete bodily human beings are judged rather than just souls. In these ways, St. Thomas can explain why we are judged twice by God. It's not that God judges us twice in exactly the same way, which would seem to be unfitting to his wisdom and power. Rather, God judges twice, but from different points of view, where the scope of what is judged is different, and so is exactly what is judged. From St. Thomas's point of view, if we wish to prepare ourselves for judgment, we can be judged now through justification, where according to St. Thomas, God judges us in Christ and makes us by his grace ready for eternal life. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Father Simon, for that very clear and very complete presentation. Um, are you ready to take some questions? I can take questions, yes, okay. of course. Wonderful. Um, our first question is from Nizar. Um, and to summarize um, his question a bit, which is quite long, um, the um, after the particular judgment, the soul is without its body, um, but it still has, it, assuming the soul goes to heaven, um, reaches the beatific vision. What about the soul in that state is incomplete and needs um, the um, body? What is it if the soul is already um, experiencing the beatific vision. Why does it need the body if the beatific vision is totally perfect? What gives the core essential happiness for human beings is the beatific vision. I don't think that St. Thomas's account of our complete happiness in every way is the beatific vision only, but it's the beatific vision that is the essence the core of this happiness. Now, St. Thomas thinks because the beatific vision doesn't come through our bodily senses and so on, the body isn't needed for the soul to enjoy the beatific vision. So in terms of what makes the soul happy at its core, its essential happiness, that is provided by God and not by pleasure or riches or fame or anything else we might have on earth, including the body. The body is not what makes human beings happy. St. Thomas thinks instead that the body gets made happy. So the body doesn't make us happy, it's God that makes us happy. But the body is to be made happy by having the happiness in the soul flow through the soul and into the body too. So it's not that the body makes the soul more happy in the sense that the essence of the soul's happiness, its vision of God, is going to be dialed up by having the body. No, God is doing that already, and it's God who gives us our core happiness. But because the soul naturally wants to have a body. That's just part of what being a human soul is. The human soul wants the body back 
not in order to get more happy in its core happiness, but for the happiness to be extended from the soul to the body and its body be blessed too, as well as the soul. That's the perspective that St. Thomas comes to. Thank you very much. Um, I actually had another question. Um, so we're here nearing the end of the season of Advent, um, and we hear a lot about um, waiting for the second coming of Christ in addition to the first coming. Um, do you have any thoughts of how we can incorporate thinking about the final judgment in this Advent season in particular? I think we can do so in the way that um, St. Thomas was encouraging people in his catechetical lectures. And I mentioned at the end about um, the fact that we should be justified by grace. We should put ourselves in a state of grace so that we are judged now to be worthy of eternal life. So that's something that we should do. And of course, we can do so by approaching the sacraments especially by the sacrament of confession, so that this is a way that we can find those kind of remedies for sin and so prepare ourselves to be ready to face judgment whenever it may come to us. So thinking about the last judgment in this way can make us prepare ourselves for it by living a better Christian life now 